All right. Uh, if you have your Bibles, Exodus chapter 32 is where we're going to be uh, this morning, looking out of fairly famous story, the story of the golden calf in the book of Exodus. And before we get into the text this morning, Exodus 32, let me start by asking all of you a question. The question is very simple. How many of you like waiting? Waiting. Waiting. Like just waiting in line, waiting in traffic, waiting for some, I don't see any hands. No one likes to wait. Go figure. You know, there's, it's, it's funny because on Tuesday, we're actually going to be going up to Washington to visit my parents and spend a couple weeks. We're going to get a couple weeks away. And we thought for about like two seconds, we're going to go drive up to Washington. And where my parents live, it's a 17-hour drive without potty breaks. And that thought lasted about two seconds because <laughs> with three kids, that's a long time to wait in the car, right? That's a long time of waiting. And so... We love living in Pacific Grove for a variety of reasons, and one of the many reasons why I personally love, love it, why I love living in Pacific Grove is because everything's so close. I don't have to wait a long time to get places. But about once a month, we have to make what our kids call the long car ride. And the long car ride, guess where this is? Costco. Costco, <laughs> Costco all the way through the tunnel, the other side of the peninsula, <laughs> and so our, our kids have just gotten accustomed to everything being so close. Like it's a five-minute bike ride, I can drop the kids off at school, five-minute, you know, drive to church, everything's just so close, there's no waiting involved. And the thing is about waiting, I don't know about you, is that I'm not a good waiter. I'm not a, I don't know if that's a, the right word to use that word, but I'm not good at waiting is what I'm trying to say, right? Amazon Prime, like there's this thing, I order books all the time, and if it doesn't come, when I, the thing tells me it's going to come... I get upset, I get angry, we have to wait in traffic, through the tunnel, all that. Like, I just don't like waiting. And as we come to our story in the book of Exodus this morning, there's a little detail in the very first verse of chapter 32 that I think sometimes we might overlook. And it's simply this. Israel, the nation of Israel, the people of Israel, are in a moment where they have to wait. Look, at, look, at me, look with me at verse 1 of chapter 32. The text says this. When the people saw that Moses delayed. And what's about to happen through the rest of this chapter is it's all framed with this detail that Israel is in a moment of having to wait. Nothing is immediately happening. And I don't know about you, but for me, this past year and a half has felt like this long season of waiting. Waiting for, like, the next piece of good news. Waiting for, you know, the past month or so. Waiting for June 15th to actually arrive. And just waiting for, like, to move past this, right? And so there's this sense, like, we're, we're in this moment trying to figure out, okay, how do we wait well? How do we remain faithful to God in those moments where we have to wait? Now, as almost like a negative example, Exodus 32 is almost like what not to do. In seasons of waiting, right? So keep reading with me in verse 1 of 32. So when the people saw that Moses delayed from coming down the mountain, again, they're having to wait, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, up, make for us gods who shall go before us. As for, and hear kind of the, the disdain in their voice, as for this Moses, this Moses guy, he's taking too long. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him, right? So not only, verse 1, 
is Israel in a moment of delay, of having to wait. But they're also in this moment of uncertainty. We do not know what has become of him. See, kind of the background, the backstory of this is Moses is up at the top of Mount Sinai, right? Israel is at the base of Mount Sinai, and here they are like right in the beginning stages of their year-long sort of camping trip at the base of Mount Sinai. Moses is up at the top of the mountain, and he's apparently taking too long for the nation of Israel. And Israel has this uncertainty. What's going to happen? Where is Moses? He's, what happened to this Moses fellow? And so I don't know about you, but in seasons and moments and times when there is delay and uncertainty, the best of my character usually doesn't arise, right? That's where I start to say dumb things, do dumb things, and not always act like the most godly sort of person. But look at what Israel does in this moment. In a moment with uncertainty, in a moment with delay, there's this temptation that Israel falls into to replace God with whatever is available, whatever is easily producible, and what is something that can be supplemented with God. Here's what I mean. Here's what's available for Israel. Verse 3. So all the people took off the gold rings that were on their ears and brought them to Aaron. This is what's available to them. It's the gold. It's the jewelry. It's all of, really, if you go back earlier to the book Exodus, it's all the bounty that God gave Israel as they were leaving Egypt, being delivered out of slavery. And so what's immediately right available to them, oh, this gold, this jewelry, let's bring it to Aaron. And Aaron begins to craft it and form it into tools that will eventually, we know, build the golden calf. But verse 4, here's what they can produce. Here's what they can make with their own hands. He took the gold from them, fashioned it with an engraving tool, and made it into an image of a calf. So not only is the the jewelry what's available, they're also going to now produce and make something. But then verse 5, or verse 4 and following, Something that they can supplement with God. They said, Israel, these are your gods who brought you up from the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of it and made an announcement. There will be a festival to Yahweh tomorrow. Notice how confused they are. This golden calf somehow, in their minds, is the equivalent of the God who delivered them out of Egypt, ten plagues, crossing through the Red Sea, providing for them in the wilderness, and that thou, they say in this text, we're going to have a festival or a party to Yahweh tomorrow. And we look at this story, right, and we, we, maybe you, you've seen the movie too many times or you're over-familiar with it, and we go, how in the world could Israel come to a place where a golden calf is now equivalent with Yahweh himself, with worshiping the God who has delivered him. And this is the thing about what we're going to talk about is idolatry. The worship of something other than God. It is deceptive and it creates a ton of confusion. And in addition to that, you think about what Israel's doing. Instead of waiting and remaining faithful, instead of kind of processing and working through the uncertainty of the situation, Israel is settling. They're settling for what's available, what's immediate, and what they can just craft with their own hands to supplement their worship of God. And in in a word or in a phrase, idolatry settles. Idolatry settles for something less than God himself. And you think about it. In context, last week we looked at the Ten Commandments, right? We rephrased them as the Ten Words. These words that were meant to bring and give life to Israel. 
And remember the first two of those words? No other gods, no graven images. How, how's Israel doing? 0 for 2, right? In baseball, that's not a good thing, right? 0 for 2. You don't want that. And so immediately, this is, so like in context, I know we skipped a few chapters, but in context, this is the first narrative story after the 10 words, after the 10 commandments. Because from Exodus 20 all the way through Exodus 31 is really a bunch of instructions that God gives both to Israel and for the construction of the tabernacle. So the narrative flow hasn't actually progressed until Exodus 32. And here in Exodus 32, the first story right out of the gate, Israel goes 0 for 2. No graven images, no idols. And what's kind of funny is that Israel, at the end of getting all these instructions, they say collectively, all that Yahweh has said, we're going to do it. And then Exodus 32 happens. Now, as I kind of am a little hard on Israel right now, and as it's easy to kind of read this story and be like, okay, why in the world? How could they? How is this even happening? Let's maybe just for a few minutes here be as sympathetic as possible with Israel. Right? Let's kind of shift our posture just a tad and try to be as sympathetic as possible with what is happening with Israel. Think about it again. These people are in a moment of having to wait. These people are in a moment where God's presence seems absent. And these people are in a moment where God isn't speaking as he used to be speaking. Remember, it's the ten previous chapters. God had been instructing and speaking and giving Israel instructions. And now there's silence. Now there's uncertainty. And to think about, okay, how might this be relevant and what might the implications be for us in our life? How do we respond in those moments where there's a delay or there's uncertainty or God's presence or God's speaking voice isn't as clear or isn't as readily available as we might like or what has been like that in the past? And the temptation is, in those moments, if we're honest, is to replace fidelity to Jesus with cheap, available, produced substitutes or supplements that are just more manageable and more familiar. Something that's, I can just craft it with what's available. Something that I can see that's tangible. Because if you're Israel, at least this calf is more present than God. At least by my own eyesight. This, this calf is more visible than what Yahweh is. Yahweh is up on the mountain with Moses, taking his sweet old time. This, at least this is here. At least I have this right in front of me. And I think if we're honest, again, it's not going to be golden calves necessarily for us, but I, be, I, I think we can begin to see some of the implications of how our hearts might, as the hymn says, prone to wander at times. Now, the story is going to continue, and it gets even more interesting. Verse 6. Early the next morning they arose offered burnt offerings, and presented fellowship offerings. The people sat down to eat and drink and got up to party. Now, even in the Hebrew, that, that word for party, there's connotations of sexual innuendo. Like, so this is just vulgar, vile. They're just going off the train tracks here. And, and look at this. This is crazy. Verse 7. The Lord spoke to Moses. So the, apparently they're seeing what's happening down at the foot of the mountain. Yahweh says to Moses, go down at once. Now, I love this. For your people. You brought up as a land of Egypt have acted corruptly. How many of you as parents have had those moments where your kid, your kid you, know what, you're, you know what I'm about to say, your kid's doing something, and all of a sudden it's your daughter is doing X, right? And so there's those moments, right? Your daughter's making the mess. Your, that's, that's your, that's, they got that from you, right? 
But what's interesting is here is then God, God what's going to happen as the narrative continues is that Moses is going to wrestle and intercede on behalf of Israel. And Moses is going to, in a sense, stand in the gap because Yahweh is rightly grieved and upset and angry for this idolatry. And Yahweh should be. Not because Yahweh is just this vindictive God who's up in the sky going to rain down lightning bolts. Because no, Yahweh, the God of Israel, loves and has rescued and has saved. According to Exodus, Israel is his son. Yahweh is a loving father who wants the best for his kids. And so Moses stands in the gap, pleads with God for grace and forgiveness. But then as Moses comes down the mountain, Moses comes down in verse 21 and confronts his brother Aaron. So just kind of a little bit of quick background. Moses and Aaron are brothers. Moses then asks Aaron, verse 21, what did these people do to you that you have led them in such a grave sin? And then Aaron replies in 22, don't be enraged, my lord, Aaron replied. You yourself know that the people are intent on evil. He's starting to blame shift a bit. He's starting to pass off some of the responsibility. Now, this is, it gets really funny here. They said to me, make gods for us who will go before us. Because this Moses, again, there's that disdain in their voice. This Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what happened to him. Again, that uncertainty piece again. Which is kind of ironic because you read the text, Israel is supposed to know what happened to Moses. Moses was very clear that he was going to go meet with God at the top of of Sinai. They had simply forgotten. But anyway, Aaron here is blaming. He's shifting the blame. This is as old as the Garden of Eden, right? To pass off blame for our own sin and our own folly. But then there's verse 24. You got to check this out. This is Aaron speaking. So I said to them, whoever has gold, take it off. And they gave it to me. And I threw it in the fire and out came this calf. (laughs) Like... Can you imagine? This is like, Kaysen, how did your how did your shirt get all you know with juice and ice cream all over it? I don't know. Right? It's it's kind of the same sort of mentality. How did that happen? And there's like all this evidence of you know, no, you actually intentionally fashioned a golden calf. It doesn't like oh, out pops a calf out of the fire. And we we laugh at this, and I think we're meant to, because it also in a very sort of I don't know subtle but yet not so subtle way points to the deceptiveness of idolatry. The confusion that idolatry can create. Where what we think is reality is actually nothing close to reality. When we actually look back at what the events have happened perhaps in our life, we begin to retell the narrative to make myself look good at the expense of other people and to just kind of come clean with, oh, it wasn't really my fault. I wasn't really intentionally trying to do that. And we actually begin, I actually think Aaron genuinely believes this part of the narrative. And that there's genuine deception here. And there's a genuine sort of trap that idolatry can create. Where when our worship and devotion and allegiance to God is off kilter and off the train track, so to speak, we kind of open the door for all of these sort of deceptive ways where we begin to view reality not actually as reality itself. Now, just to kind of maybe sum up here, I want to just take a few brief moments to talk about some of the dangers of idolatry. I've already kind of alluded to one right here, the deceptive nature of idolatry. But I have three more, right? Three more reasons why idolatry is really dangerous. And they all start with the letter D. So this part of the teaching is brought to you by the letter D, right? <laughs> so the first one, number one, idols deprive. 
they deprive specifically God of his proper worship. And this is kind of fairly obvious. We talked a little about this last week. But very simply, anytime our allegiance, our devotion, our worship, our adoration is off and devoted to something other than the person of Jesus, we are depriving God of his true and proper and worthy worship. He is worthy and deserving of all praise, all honor, all honor, glory, and power. And when we get off track with that, we are showing, we are revealing, we are saying in so many words that, God, actually, you aren't worthy of my devotion. And this is what idolatry does. It deprives God of his proper worship. But secondly, idols distort. What do I mean? Idols distort even our own humanity. I kind of think of a great example of this is like Gollum in Lord of the Rings, right? When he's so obsessed with that ring, and what that ring does to him, it begins to deform him. It begins to shape him and change him. And as we worship things other than the living God who has saved us and redeemed us, I think Tolkien was onto something there. That this is exactly what happens to us. That it begins to do something negative to us. You worship career or ambition or whatever, school, and it becomes all-encompassing. It becomes the everything of your life. You become someone who, maybe a year, two, decade down the road, you're unrecognizable from the person you used to be. And so we have to be careful of that. We have to be careful of how idolatry can even distort us. But thirdly, kind of related, idols disappoint. Disappoint. They might gratify for a moment. Hebrews talks about the fleeting pleasures of sin, where Hebrews is honest, right? There is pleasure in sin, but it's fleeting. It passes away. And just like Israel here at the foot of Mount Sinai is indulging in revelry and I'm sure enjoying themselves to the max, I'm sure they're having a great time. Inevitably, it's going to lead to disappointment. And I think maybe for some of us, we can recognize maybe moments or seasons or maybe even right now where we begin to chase something or someone or some idea or, and it inevitably leads to disappointment. It doesn't hold up. It doesn't retain. It doesn't have the same quality. Why? Because we're not meant to worship anything or adore anything other than, fully other than, Jesus himself. This kind of led me to, this is a longish quote, but it, it, it really, I think, kind of sums up this point here. It's actually not from a Christian. It's from someone named David Foster Wallace. In talking about this idea of the disappointing nature of idolatry and worship, he says this. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what we worship. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before you finally before they finally grieve you. On one level, we all know this stuff already. It's been codified in myths and proverbs and cliches and epigrams, parables, the skeleton of every great story. The whole trick is keeping the truth up front in our daily conscience. And what he's getting at is this idea that no matter what, if you begin to chase after these other things and that they become the center of your life, or even as a supplement to God. See, the sin that Israel had was not like, let's revert to atheism and have nothing to do with God. They actually thought they were serving and worshiping Yahweh still. 
the golden calf was supplementing their worship of Yahweh. I think that's often the danger for us as Christians. Not atheism, get rid of God. It's actually God plus something. God and something. But inevitably, that will lead to disappointment. And so as we think about this, I want to transition a little bit now to really land for us in our everyday life. How does this matter? How does this impact? How does this inform how we live as followers of Jesus today? I think I just want to kind of address maybe one of those elephant-ish things in the room as far as idolatry and the golden calf. It's kind of obvious, but no one's sitting here in their home, I, I don't think, with a golden calf in their garage or in their basement, like bowing down and worshiping it, you know, at night or something, right? So that's clearly not, you know, our problem today. Or is it? <laughs> right? This is where it really comes, where it comes down to. Ezekiel 14, God speaking through the prophet Ezekiel, talks to Ezekiel in Ezekiel 14 about the idols of the heart. And this idea that really the practice that Israel is doing with idolatry here in Exodus 32, yes, it's manifesting itself outwardly in, it, in their actions, but Ezekiel 14 talks about actually that's actually starting from the, the deepest parts of who we are, the human heart. Our allegiances, our loves, our desires, our, what we're devoted to. And the thing is, is that for sure, our idols might not be statues and sort of like the ancient Near Eastern way of thinking of gods and statues and sacrifices and all that sort of stuff. But I think Tim Keller really helps us out here when he talks about what is an idol. Let me read to you one more quote, last quote for the day, I promise. Tim Keller writes, what is an idol? It is anything more important to you than God. Anything which absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give you. We think that ideas are bad things or idols are bad things, but that's not, that's, sorry, but that is almost never the case. The greater the good, the more likely we are to expect that it can satisfy our deepest needs and hopes. Anything can serve as a counterfeit God especially the very best things in life. And what Keller is rightly pointing out is that oftentimes the things that we make idols, that we do the God plus thing, are often not bad things in and of themselves. They're often great things, good things, things that James 1 talks about of being good gifts from a good father. And so the question isn't necessarily about, you know, oh, running from all of these bad things. That might be the case for sure in some instances. But I think for, for a lot of us, it's asking ourselves that question, what is that God plus thing that often competes for our allegiances, that it actually is a good thing, but sometimes the ordering, sometimes the, the orientation of that can get off a little bit. You know, I think for just speaking personally for myself, one thing that kind of has often, has come up often this, these past few weeks is just sort of like, I don't know how to phrase this without sounding kind of weird, but here, here it goes. Kind of like how I idolize my time. And how, how I'm, depending on your perspective on, on me, how overly protective I might be with my time. And, and, and that relates to, like, my idea of, like, productivity. How much can I produce or get done in a day? And so I have, like, this weird habit. This is maybe really weird, but here it goes. I have this weird habit of writing all the things I need to get done on an index card for a day. And I've started, like, making it, like, every half hour. This is what I'm going to do every half hour. And I've noticed that there's moments, there's times, there's moments in the week where if I, like, am checking stuff off and I'm on a roll, I'm feeling pretty good about myself. Like, I'm pretty good with the kids. I'm really pleasant to be around. But the moment, like, I'm starting to get behind on that list and the moment that I'm not, you know, 
productive or whatever, you know, word you want to fill in there. And that list has, you know, see, this is also a weird thing about this. I'll write things down that I've already done just to then check them off, <laughs> right? And it makes me feel good, right? <laughs> How many of you have done that? Yes, thank you, right? <laughs> but, the, but the point is, is that if I'm really honest and paying attention to my heart and the responses and how I'm really interacting with my family, it's really what it comes down to. I, I'm noticing these patterns of I'm actually, I don't know if you want to call it worship, maybe it is, but there's this unhealthy relationship with how I view myself and my productivity and my time. And when I'm not meeting this external standard that I'm placing on myself, it does affect how I relate to people. And it reflects on my tone and all these sorts of things. It's just, it's a good thing, right? Productivity and getting things accomplished, that is a good thing. But when it gets in the way of my relationship with Jesus and how I treat others, how I love God and love neighbor, then that's where it becomes or it can be become a problem. And so I think my question then, one of two questions, this is the first one that I have for us this morning is simply this. Especially in those moments, like think about Israel in the beginning where I talked about. In those moments of waiting and uncertainty, where do you turn? Where do you go to? What are perhaps some of the habits that you might have that make you feel a little bit better or a little more productive? Or I don't know. Again, this is not to guilt or to shame. Often these are actually good, good things. But thinking about for a second your own life, where do you turn? Where do you go to in those moments of having to wait? In those moments where I'm not totally sure what's going to happen this week and I'm a little bit anxious about it. I'm actually really anxious about it. You know, I mentioned earlier at the beginning that we're headed off to vacation for a few weeks. And I'm really excited on one level. And at the same time, there's a little bit of uncertainty because in the past, it's been not always the most relaxing time. And so how do I process that? What am I turning to? What am I turning to? Or who am I turning to in those moments? And I think that begins to reveal some of where my heart and devotions and desires are actually there or where, where they're actually going to. And at the same time, though, as we think about that, so you have, that's kind of one set right there, the, kind of the question of, like, trying to identify where you turn. But I don't want to just stop there. I don't want to just kind of leave you with, okay, let's identify our idols or identify our tendencies and kind of just wallow in sort of this, like, I don't know, because you can get to this place of guilt and shame and just there's not really a solution, there's not really redemption or power there. So on one hand, yes, I think we do need to have some sort of practice or a question of, okay, identifying my tendencies and identifying where we turn but also, on top of that, how then do we respond so that we worship God? That we worship God because we are so impacted in, 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 in uh, just adoring him because of his love for us. So yes, there's the identifying piece, but then there's also the question of how then do we respond? And let me start by just kind of throwing out two ways perhaps not to respond. Sometimes clarity-wise, it helps just to not know what to do, and then we'll get to what perhaps we should do as far as disciples of Jesus. The first way not to respond as far as how to turn from idols and turn to worship is what I just call the religious response. Just simply trying to do more for God. Just simply trying to 
do certain things and just show my devotion to God by just externally doing X, Y, and Z. Because the danger is, the danger for every single one of us, and especially for people like myself in sort of this vocational role, is that you can be doing more for God without actually becoming more like God. And that is a real danger, not just for me, but for really all of us, if we're honest. And so the solution is not simply just to do more. That's the first one. The second one is what I would just call, for lack of a better term, the secular response. And what I mean by this is just simply idol swapping. Where on one hand, perhaps that you, I had a good friend I was talking with recently, this was their story, that I was in this, you know, really, you know, close relationship with this person, this person meant everything to me, and, and, and there was this realization that that person became sort of an idol to a certain degree, and that relationship fell apart, and so then the tendency then was to swap over, okay, I'm just going to devote my life to my career in school, and it was just basically an idol swap, and then never really got to the, the deep heart issues there of allegiances, of devotion. And so the solution, again, is not to just swap idols for this one, for that one, but actually to go even deeper. And this is where I want to kind of land for us this morning. I was thinking about this a lot this week and thinking, you know, about this in the context of preparing a sermon means you end up rewriting the thing about 20 times, but this is what we, we, we landed on. And as I was really kind of praying and pressing into this, the line, there's this line at the end of 1 John that kept coming up. And it simply is this, 1 John 5.21, John writes... Dear children, keep yourself from idols, or keep yourselves from idols. And what's so fascinating about this line is that if you read the entire letter of 1 John, it's just five chapters, this is the last verse. If you read the entire letter of 1 John, there's not one time besides this verse that idolatry or idols ever comes up. It's almost like this mic drop. John's just writing, keep yourself from idols, peace out, I'm done. And you're like, hold on a second. You haven't talked about idols at all, and now you're just going to throw this at me. But here's the thing. You go and read 1 John, and maybe if, you know, if you're into homework, that sort of thing, go read 1 John this week. And you'll notice the predominant theme throughout the entire book is the love of God. Constantly, John is talking about abiding and remaining in God's love. And recognizing that if we confess our sins, we have a God who loves us and forgives us. And that Christ has demonstrated and shown his love by laying down his life for us as an atoning sacrifice. It's God's love over and over and over. Not in that cliche way, but in that Jesus-centered, gospel-centered way, God's love. It's the main theme of 1 John. But then John ends with this line, keep yourself from idols. And so the question that I've been pondering is, okay, so what then is the relationship between why would John spend all these verses on love and then just throw this one-liner on idolatry? Keep yourself from idols. I've become convinced that what John is saying here in 1 John, what this last line, is that the more that one is anchored and rooted in God's love, you then have the power and the ability to flee from idols. The more that one is rooted and, and, and soaked in the presence and the love of a good father, recognizing that what God has done for us in Jesus, you then have the power and the ability to then turn from all those other things because they fade in comparison with the love of God. A heart, a mind, a life that is captured by God's love. It's then not, you know, all the time easy, but it's easier to then say, you know what, I'm going to keep myself from idols, to keep myself from all those other things that disappoint and fall short. Jude, Jesus' brother, almost has kind of the opposite line in his little epistle. Jude 1, verse 21, Jude writes, keep yourselves in the love of God. 
keep yourselves rooted and anchored in God's love. Keep yourselves rooted and anchored that nothing, Paul, Romans 8, can separate you from the love of Christ. That what God has done for us in Christ Jesus, the sacrificing himself for us, is the impetus, is the, the foundation for us as followers of Jesus to then say, you know what? All these other things, they fade in comparison. They don't measure up. And friends, on one level, that's sort of kind of the theology behind this. But then, okay, we still got to bring this down a little bit. How then do we even do this? Jude one twenty one. keep ourselves in the love of God. What does that look like in practice? You know, I was thinking about even this part this week, for thinking about like idolatry and worship and what does it mean to become the kind of person that is so utterly convinced and captivated by God's love for me and for his people that everything else, yes, it's enjoyable, it's good, it's fun, but it does not compare to the love of God. What does that process look like? And I was reminded of one of the, the, the letters that Jesus kind of wrote through John to one of the churches in the book of Revelation. And there's that sort of famous-ish line where Jesus writes to the church of Ephesus, you have left your first love. You've turned away. You've kind of done, you've done, the church in Ephesus was doing all these amazing things. Their lives on the outside had this robust sort of, I don't know, this aroma, this, this sense of living for Jesus, doing all these right things, but Jesus has this one thing against them. You have left your first love. And what Jesus then follows up with, okay, to turn back from me, or turn, turn back to me, to not just identify those areas that have kind of led you astray, but then to turn back to him. And what does Jesus say? He says three things. Remember, repent, and do the things you did at first. Remember. Remember what it was like before, when you were so captivated and anchored in God's love. And I don't know about you, I've, I've noticed even in my own life, the past year and a half especially, there's been so many crazy things happening with COVID and church and just trying to, you know, work through all the different dynamics of all the change that we've gone through. And it's really easy to be distracted by things on the news or the media or life in general that it kind of reorients or kind of gets us off the tracks from really anchored, being anchored in God's love. And it's easy to kind of be distracted by all the things that are happening in life to the point where when we look back, and you kind of do a self-evaluation that perhaps I'm not as anchored in God's love as what God intends for me. I remember thinking back to this past week, thinking about the, the, the days in my, when I went to college up at UW. And those formative years in my life where God was just capturing my heart. And it was like I would just read scripture day in and day out. And God was transforming me. And there was this like this passion and this zeal. And it's like... God, I want that again. I want that devotion and that desire and that, that hunger again. That, God, you would help me to remember those moments, those, those moments in my life where, God, that your love was so impacting and so compelling my life that everything else, yes, it was good, enjoyable, fun, all those sorts of things, but it didn't compare to you. What might that be for you? Can you think of a moment in your life remembering back to where God's love was just so captivating and so beautiful to you. What was that season like? What was God saying? What was God speaking over you in those moments? 
And then secondly, Jesus says to turn, to repent. That word simply just means, I know there's a lot of baggage with that word, but I've talked about it before. The word repent simply just means to turn. Acts 3 talks about being repentance being a time of refreshing and experiencing the presence of God. Right? So, so to turn from going down these other paths that inevitably will disappoint, to turn back to Jesus and his love for you. And then thirdly, though, Jesus says, do the things you did at first. So just thinking about it, really practically, what might be one or two things that maybe you used to do that really helped cultivate this abiding sense of God's love that perhaps it's now easy to just, ah, uh, it it's not as regular now. And again, no guilt, no shame. It, what, it could be one thing, it could be a couple things. Where is the Spirit reminding you and prompting you right now? I know for me, as I was thinking about it, it was, we are talking about worship, and in particular, this idea of worshiping God. The, the moments where God has been so real and so close, where I've been so captivated by the love of God, is where I've been having, when I would have personal and regular rhythms of worship through song. You know, I'm not a singer. I don't sing, no musical ability at all. So you don't want me up here unless maybe I'm doing something like this. But what, I, what I'm talking about is that yes, so just like a theology of worship, all of life is to be worship 100%, right? So we all agree, I think we should all agree on that. But in particular, understanding that there is a particular, I don't know if I want to say it like this, like a special sort of thing that happens when we worship God through song. The book of Psalms. Historically, all of these songs and these poems devoted to worshiping God. And having those personal rhythms in my life, where it's usually through like a Spotify playlist, you just get, you know, really down to earth. There's a select few songs that whether it's through my reading and studying, I just need to take a break, get my head out of some books, and just sit with some headphones or just by myself with the music on, just worshiping Jesus for who he is. And having that as a regular rhythm to keep my heart soft and tender and that my view and vision of God is big and magnificent. I mean, I don't know about... For you, I just, for me, I just was really convicted this week. There's a couple songs that I would used to go to regularly to really cultivate that heart and that pattern of worship that I haven't really been doing all that often recently. I've been into sort of like, I just want to make sure I get all this stuff done. There's a bunch of stuff I wanted to get done before we went on vacation, just kind of really relax. And I was able to do that, but kind of in the process, maybe have strayed a bit as far as cultivating that heart of worship. And so this morning, even as I was thinking about this, there's a couple songs that, that just really just God was ministering to me through. One in particular was the song, Is He Worthy by Andrew Peterson. And, I've, you know, if you can, just go home and Google it or, or whatnot, but Is He Worthy? It's this beautiful song where you're, you end up kind of asking yourself as you sing it these questions of, is he worthy of worship? Is he worthy? Is he worthy? And by the end of the song, you're just like, yes, he is worthy. Let's go for it. He is worthy. And it's just such, just this beautiful moment where God's presence is so real. Is he worthy? Yes, he is worthy of worship. And there's something that song, at least for me, does that, again, I love theology, I love books. There's something that worshiping God through song can only do. There's a couple others, these old hymns by this, this lady, Ann Steele, born in 1717. I don't think, I've never met a single person besides my, my mentor from Washington who's ever heard of this, this lady, fabulous lady. And some beautiful hymns, Dear Refuge for My Weary Soul, Thou Lovely Source of True Delight. Just rich, meaty hymns where I just, it is beautiful, powerful lyrics. And so I'll turn these hymns on and just have these moments 
of worshiping God for who he is. And I say that as part of this do the things you did at first kind of vein. What might that be for you? Maybe it's developing some practices. Maybe it's developing some habits of maybe just finding a few songs that really speak and minister to you, that really can get your heart set on the person and the beauty and the glory of Jesus, that help to reorient and reshape us more and more into the image of Jesus. You know, I want to invite the worship team to come out now. And we have a beautiful moment, just even in these next few minutes, to really just practice what we're talking about, worshiping God. To really lay before him our lives, our hearts, our emotions, whatever might be going on. That we have an opportunity to turn from whatever it is that might be distracting us, whatever it is that might be weighing us down, to remember the goodness and the grace and the faithfulness of our God. A God who has loved us and sent his son to die for us. That there is no greater love than this, that Jesus would lay down his life for us and that we turn to him in worship and in song. Friends, he is worthy. And I pray, God, that this morning that you would help us all to see that. That we would all help us all to see how worthy you are of worship. That our whole lives, yes, and as we sing to you in particular, that our hearts would be more and more captivated by your love, God. That, God, you would do a work that only you could do, that the Spirit of God, that Spirit, you would shed abroad the love of God in our hearts, as Paul says. God, soften us. Make us more tender and open to the work of your Spirit in our lives. God, we need you. We love you. We thank you. You are worthy of our worship. And we pray these things in your name. Amen. We're going to be singing a new song.